Before we get started this morning, I just want to welcome everyone back again. I hope this, we're, we're getting towards the end of the, the uh, Sunday school season, and particularly for this class. We will end this month with this study in the first two weeks in June. Um, Deb Runlet is coming back. She inspired us with a, a comment in one of her sermons that many people wanted to hear her talk more about, and that is how you view yourself as a relationship to how you view God. And she, she's going to talk for two weeks on, on uh, that topic predominantly. Just several emails have come to me um, and had asked about uh, how we could thank our speakers. This, this uh, Sunday school session is what we consider our mature adult class. Uh, we, we consider ourselves seekers. Uh, we have invited theologians throughout the year to speak, and I think it's been a pretty inspiring year. There's really no budget provided by the church for this. We do this basically out of funds, donations that come from you all. Uh, and some of you have been very generous, and I'll thank you. And for those of you who are thinking about donating for the remainder of this year and begin next year, I'll thank you in advance. We really do need your support. We don't put out weekly offerings and so in that regard we look forward to your expression of joy and appreciation by any contributions you can make you can make them ear tagged to the church with Westminster class ear tagged or specifically Logos Institute either one of those will get money to this class and to our speakers that we are bringing in and inviting in both the end of this year and the beginning of next year Let's open in prayer. Father God, we humble ourselves before thee. We give you thanks for the beauty of today as summer and spring kind of meld together and come upon us. We're reminded that you are the light and you are the warmth in our lives. This special day, Father, that we recognize our origins and our mothers for those who we can share with, for those that we can share memories of. We give you thanks. And as our mothers nurtured us, may your word and the words that we are about to hear nurture us further and grow our faith in you. Help us remember always that you are our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. How's the sound? Pretty good? Okay. Uh, before we start this morning, I just want to give a brief introduction to my friend Carl Ralston, who is sitting here. Uh, Carl, uh, some of you may remember me talking about him. He started the organization Remember New. Uh, that was about, I think, 10 years ago that Carl and I first went to Thailand to try to look for New, who at that time was not found. So it's a great topic to talk about on Mother's Day because of the thousands and thousands, and in fact, millions of children all over the world who not only don't have mothers any longer, they don't have fathers. So, uh, anyways, one person knew a Vietnamese girl that God touched Carl's heart over and thought he, and I believe he did, but he didn't hear it verbally, but he had an impression inside of him, Remember New, when he first heard her story. And so that's why the organization is called Remember New. So that was uh, 10 years ago, and now, as of now, there are 40 Remember New homes. How many countries? 10 countries, and about 1,000 children in their care. So it is an amazing thing to watch how God has been working through this organization. 
these children are victims and subject to the sex slavery trade. And so what Remember New does is uh, try to find the kids the best they can that are uh, at risk for this kind of thing and then place them in their homes. And having been there uh, to a number of homes and uh, spent a lot of time there, it is truly a God-centered and love-centered experience. There's nothing like it. So uh, if you have a chance, say hi to Carl afterwards. And uh, and by the way, I thought too, as I was praying this morning, I just thought I'd throw this out. Anybody has an extra $100,000 laying around you don't know what to do with? Seriously, for 100000 bucks, you could start a home and and take care of 50 to 100 kids for a pretty long time. So it would be a great investment, okay? So there's my spiel for today, and talk to Carl about the rest of it. Uh, Also, uh, Zev told me this morning that uh, he's not worried about the fact that we're not going to get through everything. And so that took uh, relief off my mind, because as you can see, we're doing the big picture view on Hebrews here. And uh, it's going to get worse, because we just booked... Uh, at John Knox for four weeks to teach Hebrews in four weeks. So uh, (laughs) Zev blanched when he heard this, but the trooper that he is, he he recovered, and we're going to go forward with it. So if you want a crash course, you can come there and and get it all over again on a a smaller level. Okay, so today I want to start us off before he teaches uh, at the second part and I want to give you a reprise, perhaps, or a review that I think is essential to understanding the book of Hebrews. And that is, what are the worldview assumptions and presuppositions that the author, which we think is Apollos, had as he unpacked the text? So I've got these three concepts up here, reality, shadows, and types. And I want to briefly go through that so that the stage will be set when Zev comes and unpacks the particularities of Melchizedek, the Melchizedekian priesthood, and what that means for you and me and what it meant for the early Jewish people. So let's start out with reality. Uh, The author is definitely Jewish, and so from that point of view, reality in the Jewish mindset obviously is what? Yes. So I'm going to use the Greek letter theta as a symbol for God. And since we're talking about the God of the Bible, I'm going to put God's name in Hebrew here for you. And you remember last week we were talking about this, Y-H-W-H. And of course, there's a commandment in the Ten Commandments that says what about God's name? Don't take God's name in vain, in in a futile sense. And it's an amazing thing to me, uh, I think I hear God's name more on the golf course <laughs> than I do in church. <laughs> well, to prevent that kind of misuse, just so that you can understand a little bit about the culture, the ancient Jews eventually put a box around this name. And they said, well, the cleanest and clearest way never to use it in vain that's God's name, not the, not the term God, but God's proper name, Y-H-W-H. The cleanest and uh, best way never to use that in vain is what? Never say it. That's 
an okay. That's why Jewish people don't tend to say this. But here we go. This is the reality that we're talking about. Now, this God, as presented in the Bible, has got one attribute that I really want to stress today for us to be able to understand the thought process in the book of Hebrews. And you know all of the omnis, right? The attributes of God. So give me one. Omnipresent, which means what? Always everywhere. Everywhere present simultaneously. No, no place where God is not. Omnipotent or omnipotent, which means what? All-powerful. All and don't get caught up in the modern trickster things when they say, well, can God build a rock that he cannot list, lift? And therefore, if he can't, either way, he must not be omnipotent. When the Bible, in fact, in the book of Hebrews, it even says God cannot lie. So there are some things that God cannot do. God can never do evil. God can never lie. That's not what omnipotence means. Omnipotence means God can do anything that is uh, uh, coherent with God's nature. Now, the last one, that's the one I want to stress today. Omniscient. What does omniscient mean? All-knowing. God knows the end from the beginning. The end from the beginning. So, that is, from the Jewish point of view, ultimate reality. Everything else, including the cosmos, the material creation, and even when we get to humans, are regarded as secondary reality. This is really hard for Westerners to get a, their minds around, right? Because for us, reality is what? Stuff you can touch, weigh, measure, smell. From the Jewish point of view, reality, ultimate reality is God. This cosmos and everything in it is secondary reality. And actually, as the Bible develops, it leads us to this notion that the secondary reality that God has made is supposed to be sort of like a bridge or a, uh, a way into getting in touch with the God who is invisible. So God creates the entire cosmos and everything in it and in, even in the Bible as sort of a shadow. Now, shadows are not uh, bad things. They're just what? What are they? They're the reflection of the higher reality. And so they lead you, if you follow them, if you follow the shadows, they can lead you back to the reality. So this is God's point to put this whole system together. Uh, what does it say about the uh, humans, in fact, the original humans? How, what are they like? What does God describe them in the Bible? They are well, they are made out of dust. <laughs> Let's be positive today. Made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. It doesn't mean the physical image, because why? I've seen enough pictures of an old white guy sitting on a throne for my lifetime's taste. What's it mean? It can't be physical, because why? God's, God is spirit. So when the Bible says God made us in God's image, it means that we are like, in a very loose way now, like or as God, and by looking at a human being, you can get some sort of shadowy image of what the God that cannot be seen is really like. Okay. So now, having laid that out, and there's m many of these things that are developed in the Bible, now we get today to this issue that is crucial to understanding the author of Hebrews. And this is called types or typology. And I just happened to click on and look up the Wikipedia article on typology. T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. If you want to get into this, this is a pretty good article. 
A lot of people sneer at Wikipedia, but it's really good. Google it, typology, and read the Wikipedia article if you want to get into it. It's really good. So what do we want to talk about this morning really briefly is what is a type? And where does it come from? So here's the Greek word, tupas. And what it means is a blow or an impression of something. So how many of you have watched uh, the um, films from uh, the Middle Ages when they pour the wax on the letter or when they want to put an insignia on an official document, they pour the wax in, and then the king does what? Puts their ring in there, and then when they withdraw it, it is the official insignia, but that is what? What is that that's there? That's a tupas, okay? Because an impression has been made, and then the original is on the king's ring, okay? So a tupas is a blow or an impression, and there's always in a corresponding, the way that you can tell it's a true tupas, is there's always a corresponding antitype, which is weird language, but what it means is, is the, the impression is the antitype, this, or I'm sorry, the blow is the tupas, and this is the antitype. This is the original, okay? So in Scripture, there are these uh, blows or impressions that the God of the Bible has put into the Scriptures that are the uh, preparation or the impressions that God embedded into the Scriptures so that when the antitype comes along, the real thing you and I would have a permanent record, and also the Jewish people in particular, because those were the ones that received those uh, scriptures in the beginning, they would have a type, and then as the, as the fulfillment came to be, they would have the anti-type, and you can take this and go back to here, and you can say what? It matches, it matches. yes. And so God has embedded all of this into the scriptures, these types, and then the anti Now, what's the ultimate antitype? Jesus. Yes, he's the climax. So God has been spending, beginning, I, I believe, in 1445, all the way up to Jesus, 1400 and some years, God's been building these antitypes into scriptures so that, uh, building types into the scriptures so that when the antitype c- came, there would be a people prepared to start making these correlations. Yes, sir? Question. Going back to Zev's first lecture, read the concept of the ideal the, perfect podium. The archetype. But we don't but we in reality. How does that relate to it, reality? It relates very well. Uh, his question is, going back to Zev's first lecture, when he talked about the Greeks and their notion of this uh, ideal world up here, of which everything down here is a shadow. Isn't this strikingly sim- similar? Well, and I, I, yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some people... That's something I've thought about for a long, long time, but either validating my... Well, I'm glad... Uh, no, you, you know you're on the, the exact brilliant path, because do you remember where Zev told you that the author uh, most likely came from because the book of Hebrews corresponds perfectly to the kind of literature that that group of people produced. Anybody remember? Alexandria, Egypt, the epicenter of where Greek, Platonic, or Socratic thought was taught. 
Yes. So sometimes Christians get freaked out about this. They say, wow, the Greeks had the same concept. Well, yeah, they did. They had very similar concepts because why? Is God the God of the Jews only? No. So God has been working through all people groups and embedding these notions inside of them that, hey, this isn't really the, the absolute real world. There's something beyond this. And the Greeks understood this very well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the significant contracts depend upon agreement. You seal the document, one-way deal, contract without iteration, perfect. Event event. Okay, because there are what, bilateral contracts right. and unilateral contracts, and, and God does what in the Bible? What, what, God, what God does is he makes the covenant, right? And then you can choose to buy into it, but God is the one that does it. And I think Zev's going to talk about that a little bit today. Okay, now... This is where it gets really interesting. <clears throat> so we understand from this that reality, God the omniscient God, and this to me has been one of the most encouraging things in my entire life to discover this. Starting in 1971 when I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit began to show me this, and it encouraged me so much because I realized as I studied the Older Testament and also began to correspond who Christ was and what he did, that there are so many correlations that nobody could have just made this up. It must, re, it must be a reflection of what? An omniscient God and an eternal God who then, as it were, in the Bible, embedded all of these shadows and types so that as we read the scriptures and as we looked at the life of Christ, we would begin to see what? ever-increasing correlation. There's a permanent written record that demonstrates that God has been orchestrating this whole plan of redemption from the beginning of time. It's not something that the Jews just made up. Now, <clears throat> let me give you a couple just so that you can see that the author of Hebrews is not the only one that does this. Uh, the entire Newer Testament is filled with these things. Find John 1.14 for a second. And I'll show you just two. And then I'm going to set this up so that when Zev starts teaching about Melchizedek, it, it will hopefully make better sense. So John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh, and somebody already read it, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, dwelt, 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 dwelt among us? Who's got the correct translation that says lived? Who's got the correct translation? Does anyone have one that says tented? Does anyone have one that says tabernacled? No, they don't translate it anymore that way. And that's a shame because what John really wrote was and the word became flesh and tented or tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, <clears throat> the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, tented, tabernacled. What does this remind you of? A structure. Like what structure? The tabernacle. The tabernacle of, of what? In the wilderness, right? And what did, what did God say about that tabernacle, that tent that they put together, which eventually evolved into the temple? But what did God say about that tabernacle, that tent? What was it supposed to mean? That God was 
there dwelling right in the midst of God's people. And they had to build their camps right around that interior tent. And in the center, as you know, there were three parts. And in the very Kadosh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies, they were to believe what? That the eternal, omniscient, living God was there. In a spot. God was with us. By the way, what do they call Jesus' name in various places in the Bible? Uh, Yeshua, yes. Um, starts with an E. Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. So what John was really saying in John 1.14 is that the invisible, eternal, transcendent being at a certain point in time did what? Became, came down and tented, took up human flesh, a tent. The Bible even calls our bodies a tent. You want a new one? <laughs> you believe in Jesus, you're going to get one. Yes, this is like a tent. And Jesus then did what? He lived among us. So that's one huge type, and it, it, it kind of misses it in the translation when it says uh, he lived among us because John wants us to understand that tabernacle was designed by God in the wilderness eventually to be, that's the what? That's the type. And then 1,500 years later comes what? The antitype, the fulfillment, God living among us in human flesh. I'll use John again for the next one, John 129. John the baptizer sees Jesus coming. What does he say? Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, so what was the type in the Older Testament? Why did he call Jesus the Lamb of God? The types were the lambs. All, and all, you know, basically all of the animals, but the lamb is chosen in this context. The lamb was the sacrificial object that took upon itself the sins of the sinner and as it were, exchanged its life in a symbolic way for 1,500 years. The Jewish people did this over and over and over again. God pounding that type into them until what? Until Jesus comes and he is the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do through the entire book, in a sense, to show us that God has been embedding these types to prepare the Jewish people and so that when the antitype came, the Messiah, Jesus, boom, the logic would click in, and, and the author of Hebrews uses logic. He doesn't just use mystical, allegorical thought. He uses logic, and Zeb's going to show you that today, to show you the inexorable conclusion that you and I are supposed to draw out of this amazing array of types and antitypes that are climaxed in the person of Jesus. Okay, now, when we get to Melchizedek, I want you, last text I want to show you is in Hebrews 7.3. So find that one. I want to see how your translations deal with this. What does he say about Melchizedek? Without father or mother. A lot of people who read the Bible literally take that to mean, well, Mel Melchizedek really didn't have a mom or a pop. Okay, we'll see. Keep reading. No beginning and end. No genealogy. Ah, Suzanne's translation. Resembling... Well, who's got something a little bit different? Resembling the Son of God. He resembled the Son of God. Made like unto the Son of God. As the Son of God. So all types are to be considered as... As. Or as similarities. Or metaphors. Not a one-to-one -one correlation. And this is the Greek word. Aphomoia. Like. So Melchizedek was... 
like the Son of God in the way that it's presented in the Bible. He is a type. He's the blow, and then who comes along and completes that impression? Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Now, that's what I wanted to share with you that is in the mind of the author of Hebrews. I want to give you a few minutes to ask questions, and then Zev will come and unpack the rest of it. Yes. Could Melchizedek been God? Okay, that's what I'm, why I'm, it's a great question, so don't take this in the wrong way, but that's why I am spending the time on this so that you get it. No, he's not God. In fact, he's not Christ either. Uh, hold on, I know you believe this, so just hold on, just hold on. It's okay, and it's okay, but I know you have a question, that's fine. Just, just give me a second. <laughs> And I appreciate your zeal. He's not God and he's not Jesus. He was a king and a priest in a historical place in time. And we have, uh, if you believe that he is Jesus, it's not going to kill you. It's not going to hurt you. But you're going to have some little dangling, in fact, some major theological issues down the road. Like, for example... If he lived there for a long enough t- period of time that he would have been king and priest and everybody knew him, then he would have had to have what? A body. Which would mean then that he would, that if it was Jesus, then it would have to have been a prior incarnation, prior to the one that I just told you about, right? And the word became flesh and lived among us. That, that event that John's describing, that he became flesh and lived among us, that's a once and for all, unique, never-to-be-repeated event. So the beauty of, of the Melchizedekian story is, is that God created this creature, this human, Melchizedek, and raised him up so that to prepare people for what? This eventual antitype climax that would be fulfilled in Jesus. So a human that resembles or is like the Son of God in the way that he's presented in the Bible. Does that make sense? See, this does not de-supernaturalize anything. In fact, it flips it and makes it even more amazing because that must mean then what? That God had all of this in God's eternal mind and laid it all out ahead of time so that when Jesus did come, you and I would see the connections. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I can see why you say that. But why, how was Jesus with God from the beginning? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. How was Jesus there in the beginning with God? Spirit, no body. In fact, he wasn't even called Jesus then. That's right, that's the incarnation. And that's what I'm trying to stress to you, that that incarnation, when God became human, when God became a true living being, like a human being like us, once and for all, never to be repeated. Now, there are types to get us ready for that concept, and Melchizedek is one of them. Okay, let it fly. Okay, so the word resembling that you put in here is, Mm -hmm. is very significant. You know, so what I'm at, what I'm looking at then is then when they are talking about Melchizedek being without father or mother or genealogy and has ne- neither beginning of na- days nor end of life, 
that's not a factual statement of the life of Melchizedek. No. It's just an observation as they look back into the scriptures. Yes. Okay. It's a rhetorical device that God purposely did so that he, when Jesus came, would resemble Melchizedek. Does that make sense? Of course Melchizedek had a, a, a mom and dad. It's a terrible thing on Mother's Day to drop out your mom from genealogies, but the fact is, is that the author of Hebrews, being illuminated by the Holy Spirit, looks back into the text, sees this Melchizedek, says, where does he come from? There's no record of him, no genealogy, nothing. And then, boom, the Holy Spirit did what for the author of Hebrews? Apollos. Oh, I get it. His genealogy wasn't put in there on purpose so that he would be a type and resemble Jesus when Jesus came so that the completion would be there for us to observe. Yes? What seems significant that the people who see the norm would not have recognized. Yeah, I don't know if Abraham recognized Melchizedek as a type of the coming Messiah. I don't even know if, if Abraham recognized the, uh, the animal that was caught in the thorn bush that he eventually sacrificed in place of Isaac as a type of Christ, but there's another one, right? I don't know if they fully recognized them. But he recognized what about Melchizedek? That Melchizedek was superior to him and was a priest of God Most High. And others did too because he was appointed the priest and king of Salem and therefore he had a historical place. He was Something was going on that I, I, I think Melchizedek just radiated so much authority spiritually because he was a follower of what was, how did they use, what was his name? They don't use the four letters. L- El Yon, the Most High God, they recognize when, when, uh, when Melchizedek would say, who do you represent? He would say, God Most High, the one that is above all the others. So they recognized that he had this spiritual authority and credence, and it's, and it's built into the story and built into his life. It, it's built into people to recognize that there are some people that really know God, right? And Melchizedek is one of them, yes. Okay, uh, yes, sir? Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> I know. Yes, may I remind you, though, that in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So even Goyim can learn the Bible, dude. (laughs) Here. Oh, you got it? I've got it. All right. Better turn myself on here. Well, better to be thought of as the horse's mouth than the other end. And actually, it is germane to your question. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, My own mother is deceased, but I imagine if you wanted to find her, it would not be difficult. If you went to Mount Nebo Cemetery in what is now Aurora, Colorado, and followed the humming sound, that's my mother turning over in her grave at about 3,000 RPM. Uh, 
I remember once I was asked when I was serving in uh, Colorado at the beginning of my ordained ministry, and I uh, was asked to speak about, you know, in a sense, my story. And I was warning people to understand that my story is very atypical in a lot of ways. And the way I pointed that out is that uh, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And there were, at the time I grew up, about maybe 24,000 Jews in the city of Denver. And I suppose if you were to do a census and try to find out how many Jewish converts to Christianity there were, you might have found about 240, okay? So you're basically talking about 1% of the Jewish population. And then when you figure that the Jewish population is about 1% of the world's population, I told them, I represent about 1% of 1% of the human story. So I am fully idiosyncratic. Uh, The reason why they didn't is, what were they expecting the Messiah to be? A conquering hero, a military leader, someone who would start a revolt, throw the Romans out, reestablish the temporal kingship of David, not understanding what kind of type of the Messiah that David was, okay, and therefore, Jesus didn't fit the bill. Jesus did, just didn't fit the bill. Now, if you had to ask, well, does that mean that Jesus will never fit the bill of what the Jews were expecting the Messiah to be? Just look at the Christian expectation of what happens at Christ's return. That he comes back to establish the kingdom of God on earth, destroy the reign of injustice, and evil. In other words, they come together at the end time. Jewish messianic expectations and Christian expectations for the second coming will come together at the end time. Now, so what I explain to people, what I get to do is anticipate early, okay? I get to anticipate early the blessings of the messianic era. Now, that comes at a certain cost, because what, like what the early church understood, they understood that the world that they were living in was not the messianic reign of God on earth. Far from it. But they knew that if they believed Jesus to be the Messiah, that meant they had to live a messianic ethic in a very non-messianic world. Okay, and if you want to know what that is like, just go back, read the Sermon on the Mount, and realize that for the early church, this was not some ideal that they were to aim at. This was the shape of the Christian life that they were expected to uh, live by. The standard is tougher, but fortunately they had a little thing that enabled them to lead that Christian life, which was what? Come on. The Holy Spirit, which is the way in which Christ lives in you. Okay, so they understood that living out this messianic ethic in a non-messianic world meant the outliving of the inliving Christ. And I got that phrase from Schofield's notes. (laughs) Every now and then, Clarence Schofield did have some really great things to say. So don't despise it. Yes? You're saying messianic versus non-messianic. No. Yes. In other words, we are, as you were, resident aliens in a strange world. 
Okay, we are strangers in a strange land. We are citizens of the messianic kingdom of God living in a fallen world in which the passing of the empire of Rome does not mean that the kingdoms of this world are not fallen. Okay, so I think that's very important to keep in mind. That's one attitude that the early church had that we have tended to lose with the relative temporal success of the Christian movement. Okay, please keep everything that John has said in mind. Okay, so how do we get from Melchizedek the type to Jesus the reality? I just want to quickly review because we threw so much information. It's sort of like when I was first taught to make spaghetti. And how do you test whether the spaghetti is done? You threw a strand of spaghetti against the wall. If it's stuck, it's done. I don't do that anymore. I threw a whole lot of spaghetti at you last week. So let's see how much of it's stuck. Melchizedek and Abraham meet about, say, 2080 before the Common Era in Genesis 14. That is before the covenant with Abraham, it's before Moses, it is before Aaron, it is before the tabernacle, it is before everything else that we are talking about in this process. Then you get about 1445 BCE, you get Moses and Aaron, and Aaron is called to be a priest, okay, by God, that's in Exodus 28.1. You remember John went through this? David, about the year 980 before the Common Era, according to the way in which... Now, the key thing to keep in mind is that we're looking at Psalm 110 the way the author of Hebrews, Apollos probably, the way the author of Hebrews read it. So you want to turn back to Psalm 110 real quickly here. What's the first line that you have in your Bibles, probably? No, before that. A Psalm of David. Who do the Jew, did the Jews at the time of Jesus and at the time of the letter to the Hebrews believe wrote the book of Psalms? David. So what does that superscription of Psalm of David mean? Who wrote Psalm 110? David wrote it. And then Yahweh said to whom? My Lord. So if David is the author, who is my Lord there? Ah, that's the point Jesus is making in his encounter with the scribes on the week of his passion. How can you say that the Messiah is David's descendant when David calls him Lord? In other words, we have here David writing, according to the letter to the Hebrews... Uh, 980 years before Jesus, you know, almost a thousand years before Jesus, the Lord said to my Lord, which is who? The Messiah to come. Okay. The one who God had promised would sit on the throne of his David's house forever. Okay. And what did he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then also you get this key verse in verse 4. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You, he's still addressing the one David calls my Lord, are a priest forever after the order 
of Melchizedek. Okay, so according to the way the Hebrews author is reading this, David has, if you will, a vision of the God of Israel, Yahweh, saying to the Messiah, his promised offspring who will sit on his throne forever, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies my footstool, and moreover, I hereby swear to you, the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order or in the likeness of Melchizedek. Yeah. Yes! Brilliant! Give yourself a gold star! Okay, is it significant that Melchizedek was a priest outside the law and before the law was given? That's the point! That's the point! The Levitical priesthood is within the law... It is of the law, but the priesthood, the priestly order of Melchizedek is prior to the law and outside the law. So what happens when the Melchizedekian priesthood is inaugurated in Jesus? What happens to the law? It's over. We have a new law. Okay. Thank you. You've just saved me a lot of time. Superiority, just to remind you, the superiority of Melchizedek to Aaron. He received tithe from Abraham, so he received a tithe from Levi and Aaron through Abraham. He blessed Abraham, so he thus blessed Levi and Aaron through Abraham. This is the analysis of Genesis 14 that we get in the letter to the Hebrews. The messianic order of Melchizedek that's promised in Psalm 110 was promised on oath by Yahweh to the one David called my Lord after Levitical priesthood was in place and thus supersedes the Levitical priesthood. This is so critical for understanding everything that the letter to the Hebrews is doing. This is, in a sense, one of his central arguments And therefore, the supremacy of Jesus' priesthood to Aaron's, first of all, what's the problem with Aaron's priesthoods, the priesthood of Aaron's descendants, the Levitical priesthood? What's the problem? Well, it's not that it's not Jesus' lineage. What's the basic problem with having a high priest of the house of Aaron? Well, what happens to the priests? They die. They keep dying off. It's called old age. It happens. Okay. Don't forget also that it was considered such a high-risk part of the occupation of the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies on the day of Yom Kippur and utter the unutterable name of God that they tied a rope around his ankle that trailed out to the outside of the temple so that if he was struck down by God because of some sin or other, they could pull him out and not have to go into the Holy of Holies to get the body. Did that ever happen? I don't know. (laughs) Better be safe than sorry. Okay. Jesus has an indestructible life. Unlike the mortal and many priests, Jesus has an indestructible life. 
How do we know Jesus has an indestructible life? The resurrection, exactly. Someone asked me very early on in the class, where's the resurrection in Hebrews? There it is. He talks about the supremacy of Jesus as a high priest because Jesus' life is indestructible, having been raised from the dead. It was not possible for death to hold him. He has an indestructible life. That's why he can be a priest forever. And he has the security of the oath. This is an important contrast that the letter to the Hebrews makes in chapter 7. Was the calling of Abraham secured by God swearing an oath to the house of Abraham? No. There was no oath at the inauguration of the Aharonic priesthood. But what do we see in Psalm 110? The Lord has sworn you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here we have a divine oath that secures the priesthood of Jesus. He has a better sanctuary. What? A heavenly one. Remember, what was the argument? What did God say to Moses about the construction of the tabernacle? Anybody remember? I think we covered this. Do it exactly according to what? According to what? The plan that he showed him. What did he show Moses as the, ta- as the pattern for the earthly tabernacle? The heavenly tabernacle. Exactly. In other words, what is the earthly tabernacle? It is a, a type. It's a copy, to get into your whole thing about the Greek thought, it is a copy of the heavenly sanctuary, which is the archetype, if you will. So, Jesus serves in a heavenly sanctuary, and thus there is, as you so brilliantly pointed out, a change of law. Okay? And, and this is what I hope to get into, at least to start getting into, and this is one of the, to me, this is the high point of the whole letter to the Hebrews. This is where the rubber really hits the road. We get a new and better covenant. We get a new and better covenant. All right? Now, I want to stop at this point before we go any further. This is so important that I just covered. Before we even get into talking about covenants and contracts, questions, please. Yes? Would you please go back to the screen on superiority? Superiority of Melchizedek to Aaron. Okay. In other words, when Melchizedek and Abraham encounter each other, what does Abraham do? He offers a tithe to Melchizedek. Where are Levi and Aaron at this time? They're in his loins is the actual biblical phrase. What we would say is they're still in his gene pool. Okay, in his future gene pool, all right? We've got a few generations. So therefore, as it were, in and through Abraham, what are Levi and Aaron offering to Melchizedek? A tithe. Who offers tithes to whom? The lesser to the greater. So this means that Melchizedek is greater than Levi and Aaron because through and in Abraham... It is they who are offering a tithe to Melchizedek, not the other way around. Okay? And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Again, 
Where are Levi and Aaron? In the, the twinkle, yeah, the, the twinkle in God's eyes. Okay. And thus, he blesses Levi and Aaron in and through Abraham. Okay. This is important because they took this stuff very seriously. And another thing to keep in mind is, and this is so important. Again, we just talked about what do we have here in Scripture? What do we have in the Tanakh? What did John say is scattered all through this record? Types. Another way of looking at it is, what is Abraham? He's a type. Another way of looking at Abraham, he is a representative person. So that when God makes a covenant with Abraham, with whom is he making that covenant? Yes, with all of Abraham's descendants, which according to Paul includes who? All who share the faith of Abraham. You and me. Essentially, on the same basis, I get no advantage because I'm Jewish. All right? I get no advantage because I'm Jewish. Maybe the advantage I have is I sort of had a little bit of preparation for this that enables me to share some of that experience with you. Okay? All right. Yeah, I go through this pretty quickly because I'm aware that time is running out. Okay. The Messianic Order of Melchizedek. Here you're going back to Psalm 110. Okay, this is all basically the high points of Psalm 110, 1 through 4. Okay. It is promised on oath by Yahweh to one David called my Lord. It is after the Levitical priesthood is already in place. And thus it supersedes the Levitical priesthood. Would someone like to read Psalm 110 verses, you know, starting with a Psalm of David. Just the first four verses. Uh, Turn on the microphone. I don't think the switch is off. All right. Okay. Now, do you see how in that psalm, that is what's happening, as far as especially verse 4 is concerned, that an oath is being sworn by Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, to one David called my Lord, this is taking place. Psalm 110 was written almost 500 years after the Levitical priesthood was already in place, and thus it supersedes, as it were, the Levitical priesthood. In other words, from that point on, from Psalm 110 until the time of Jesus, it is saying, in effect, that the Levitical Aaronic priesthood is on borrowed time. Other questions? Okay. Jesus' priesthood was based on the life that was within him. Right. Within him. Okay. And not his physical descent or... Anyone, and Jesus was called by God, and we read that in Psalm uh, two seven and uh, and just right now in one hundred and ten. But Jesus then actually heard the voice of God announce that He was the Son of God. The yes. words, the, the words, "You are my Son," were spoken at the baptism. Now, this is what impressed me in all of this. Right, Jesus did not presume to step into the, that position on His own, that office on His own. Exactly, because which is the point the letter to the, the Hebrews Father makes. To reaffirm, and yet he was in the flesh of blood, but what, what was in him. Um, Everything you have just said is exactly the points the author to Hebrews is saying. 
Jesus has an indestructible life, the security of the oath, a better heavenly sanctuary, okay? And he does not presume to take that upon him. He hears the voice at his baptism, you are my beloved son, which is an echo of Psalm 3, I think, okay? You are my son, this day have I begotten you, okay? And... He is accepting the appointment of God to this. All right. Yes. right monarchy. Presbyterianism was saying this peasant from Galilee was um, can step in and, and require allegiance. My point is this stepping out to Melchizedek was central to early Presbyterianism more than to any other denomination that I know about. Okay, not just Presbyterianism, but again, this was one of the things, you know, I, I, I told people that, you know, one of the things that makes me an odd duck in many ways is that I'm also an Episcopalian who loved the Puritans. And the Puritans, that's one of the things that they were upset about, is that if Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and he is the great high priest, and the Levitical priesthood is over, what are we calling clergy priests for? Okay? We should not be calling them priests. We have one high priest. That's it. Okay. <clears throat> well, we threw a lot of spaghetti at you again today. Give me one minute. I want to ask you a question before you leave. How many here uh, would consider it true that you need... Mercy, grace, and you have some needs in your life. Okay, the rest of you have achieved complete and utter sanctification and <laughs> grace, mercy, needs. So when you go home today, I want you to read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 because this is the, one of the major points. We have a high priest in the heavens right now. You don't have to go to Jerusalem you don't have to go anywhere. And the author says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is your perpetual, eternal, high priest. Anytime you need him, anytime you need grace, anytime you need assistance, he's serving you as the high priest. And so, to make that even more important, Look at 8, starting at the first verse. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. In other words, he's saying, this is what everything's been leading up to. This is what everything in the entire epistle, this is the whole point of everything I've said so far. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Wow. Okay? Take that with you. 
absolutely take that with you. Because what the letter to the Hebrews is saying, everything that we have had in this entire course up till now is pointing to this. 